0: Let's turn in our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 19. The last verse of Matthew 19. Matthew 19 verse 30. And we're going to read from 19 verse 30 into chapter 20 to verse 16. 19 verse 30. But many that are first shall be last. And the last shall be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man... Who is a householder, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same. But about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, standing idle, and he said unto them, Why do you stand here all day idle? And they said unto him, Because no one has hired us. He said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right, that you will receive. So when even was come, the lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last... Unto the first. Now, when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a denarius. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and you have made them equal unto us. Who have borne the burden and heat of the day? And he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with my own? Is your eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we approach this powerful teaching from your son Jesus uttered 2,000 years ago and as relevant today as it has ever been, Lord, we ask that you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you'd enable us to understand. Help us to see that we're reading the words of God, that we're hearing from you. Help us to see, Lord, that you speak to us today. You speak directly to each one of us today through your word. Father, show us this morning what we need to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Gospel is Preposterous. The Gospel is Preposterous. Now, just so that you don't get me wrong, we need to define what preposterous is. What does that mean? Now Webster defines, defines preposterous this way. Preposterous is having that first which ought to be last. Inverted order, right? If you break down the word, it comes from the Latin pre and posterous. <laughs> posterous is last, but with the prefix pre on it, it's saying the last is first. This, therefore, since it's having that first which ought to be last, and since it's an inverted order of things, another definition is perverted, wrong, absurd, contrary to nature and reason. Preposterous. And that's why today uh, we often say words that we don't really fully know the meaning of, right? But we use the word preposterous a lot to mean that's crazy. That's absurd. What it actually means is it's inverting the order of things, contrary to nature and reason. So... Here's a few examples of things that are preposterous, things that put the last first. If you were to have dessert before dinner, one might say, that's preposterous, right? <laughs> <clears throat> if you were to get a book off the shelf to read and were to read the last chapter first, that would be preposterous, <laughs> right? <laughs> a little more. Um, here's another example. If you were to watch a, a sports game and you were to watch the ending first, let's say you record it, and then at the end, when it's time to watch it, you watch the ending first, and then went back and watched the whole thing, that would be preposterous, right? More seriously, on a more serious note, um, premarital sex is preposterous, because it puts what is last first, right? As the uh, children's song goes, first comes love, then come marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage, right? That's the order of things. And to reverse that order, unfortunately, that happens often. Uh, Often, first you have a baby, then you get married, then you try to hope for the best that love will happen. That's preposterous. Also, this would be preposterous, and there would be a great outcry if this happened. Could you imagine a a criminal trial where they decided the verdict before they had the trial? Do you imagine? This man is guilty, and they've never even examined him yet. This man is innocent, and they hadn't even examined him yet. That would be preposterous, and people would say, that's perverted, you've inverted the order of things, it's crazy, contrary to reason. Now I want you to notice, in our text, twice, Jesus makes a preposterous saying, doesn't he? When he says that the first will be last and the last will be first, verse 30 of chapter 19 and verse 16 of chapter 20, Jesus is making a preposterous announcement. Something in God's world is preposterous. That's what he's saying. In the kingdom of heaven, we find something preposterous. The first will be last, and the last will be first. An enigmatic saying. Now this saying confuses many people it follows on the heels of another difficult teaching Jesus has just been giving, and it's connected with it. Jesus has just encountered the rich young ruler, so this is all part of the same incident. And the rich young ruler uh, comes to Jesus. The rich young ruler, you must understand, a sincere religious person who is zealous in keeping the commandments, wants to know how he can have eternal life, and most people would think that the rich young ruler, he's in. He's, He's... He's what you should be, right? There's nothing more than that. And Jesus tells him that he lacks. Jesus tells him that he must be perfect in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. The rich young ruler leaves sorrowfully because Jesus shows him that if you want to be perfect, sell everything you have and give to the poor. When the disciples see this, they see something deeper than just a teaching on rich men. The disciples say, who then can be saved? If God requires perfection to enter into the kingdom of God, and let's make it very clear that God does require perfection in order to to enter the kingdom of God. Contrary to what the world will tell you, and most religions will tell you. Actually, they'll explicitly tell you. Don't think that God requires perfection. All Books after books are published by religious authors that are patting people on the back, and consoling distressed people and saying don't you know that your problem is you think god expects perfection that's why you're all distressed well that's perhaps true you got to know something he doesn't really require perfection jesus taught the opposite of that he does require perfection and if you're not in you should be distressed there should be a dark cloud over your head right now because you aren't saved and when the apostles heard this they said who can be saved then and peter asks the question, is it all in vain then that we've left everything, that we've we left our jobs, our families, is it all in vain then? And Jesus says, no. You who follow me will receive eternal life. And after saying that, Jesus says this, this preposterous saying, the last will be first and the first will be last. Now what follows in chapter 20 is a parable that's meant to explain this saying. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard, provided to explain the saying. A.B. Bruce rightly points out, the explanation is in some respects more difficult than the thing to be explained. (laughs) Right? (laughs) The parable itself is, is a difficult parable to understand. And you can see this because there's many different views about what this parable means, even within the Christian church. Lots of different views, trying to show how it connects, and in my opinion, brutalizing this parable. So here's three examples of what is often taught um, concerning what the parable means. Some teachers say, This parable is teaching us that we should serve God because we love him and not for reward. That's what some teachers will say. This is the point of the parables of the laborers in the vineyard. You shouldn't be concerned about what you're going to get. Just serve God because you love him. That's not a bad thought. But, brothers and sisters, I want to suggest that's absolutely not what the parable is teaching. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Some think, it's, some think this. This is perhaps the most common. Uh, that Jesus gives this saying in this parable, warning Peter and Christians against presumption. That he's warning Peter. Basically, he just said that whoever leaves uh, houses and whoever leaves uh, families and wives will receive a hundredfold. And uh, now he's warning Christians and saying, but don't think that uh, the more you do, the more you're going to get. Because everyone's going to get the same thing. And that's probably what most Christians think about this parable, or most teachers, they say, this parable teaches that everyone's going to get the same thing in the end. And don't, don't be presumptuous, Christians. Don't think that you're going to get more if you've done more. Maybe a good thought. But once again, brothers and sisters, not what this parable is about. One more uh, suggestion is that this parable is teaching us that God sees and rewards differently than we do. So they will often suggest that the people that worked for one hour worked harder than the people that worked all day and and therefore God kind of judges a little differently. Again, none of these comes even close to the point of this parable. And the question we need to ask is, what is the main point? It seems like we can dive into all the details and try to extract various meanings. But what is the main point? What is Jesus saying this saying for and giving this parable for? And that is what I want us to explore this morning. Keep that in mind. What's the main point of this parable. What's it all about? As we look at it. So what we have in this parable is a man. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man, and he's a householder, or he owns a vineyard. And he goes out in the morning in the Jewish culture in the first century. Uh, a work day began when the sun went up at 6 o'clock, and it ended when the sun went down at 6 o'clock in the evening. So sunrise to sunset was a Jewish working day. And the man gets up in the morning, sun's rising, and this is completely um, common, this is the custom, that workers or uh, men who would hire would go to the marketplace or the place where men would gather, and they would say, hey, hire me for the day, and he'd pick people to go hire to hire and uh, to go work in his field or whatever other job that they had. So it says he does that. In the morning he goes, he agrees with the laborers for a denarius. If you remember a few teachings ago, a few Sundays ago we taught on uh, the parable of the unjust steward. A denarius is a day's wage. So he says, Work for me for a day, I'll give you a day's, a day's wage. And they agree to it. So at 6 o'clock in the morning, these guys go into the man's field to work. There's nothing unusual about it so far. This parable begins rather commonplace. Now verse 3 says, And he went out about the third hour, which would be 9 o'clock in the morning, and he does the same thing. So at 9 o'clock, he goes and hires more people. Then in verse 5 it tells us that he went out at the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. That would be 12 o'clock noon and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So he goes at 6 o'clock in the morning and hires men, then 9 o'clock in the morning, then 12 o'clock in the afternoon, then 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he hires the men. Still nothing quite unusual. One might say, oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's a little odd, but it's not, I suppose someone might do that. However, in verse 6, we meet something unusual. I mean, really unusual. And we know that because the word that begins the verse is not merely the Greek word and, or chi, but it's the Greek word but, or de, D-E. And whenever the authors, or whenever Greek writers use the word de, it's sort of introducing sort of something important in the story. Not just and, like, and then this happened, and then this happened, but then this happened. That's the idea. But about the 11th hour, which, by the way, is 5 o'clock in the evening, that's one hour to go before closing time, okay? 6 o'clock is closing time. 5 o'clock p.m., the man goes out again. 5 o'clock. But about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock, he went out and he found others standing idle. And he asked them a question. Why do you stand here all the day idle? And they answer them because no one's hired us. These guys want to be hired. That's why they're there. If they didn't want to work, then they wouldn't have stood out there all day. They stood out there all day waiting to be hired. They are probably just shooting the breeze now and ready to go home because no one had hired them. Perhaps no one had hired them because they weren't the best of workers. I don't know. That's speculation. But the strange thing is, And this would have been very strange now. It's strange to us, and it would have been strange to Jesus' hearers. The strange thing is, is that the man hires them at 5 o'clock p.m., one hour before closing time. So we have in this parable, it starts completely normal. At 6 o'clock, he hires people. From the third to the ninth hour, eh, it's interesting he's hiring people. And then something strange happens. At the the, um, 5 o'clock, he hires them. The man gets stranger and stranger and stranger as we go on in this parable. As a matter of fact, it's going to be even more strange. And now listen carefully to what A.B. Bruce says about this because I think he's absolutely correct. The idiosyncrasy of the master is a leading point, indeed the key, to the meaning of the parable. Okay? The strangeness of this vineyard owner is the key to the parable. One scholar, F.W. Beer, actually entitled the parable, not the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, but perhaps more correctly, the parable of the eccentric employer. Okay? And I think that's better. This is the parable of the eccentric employer, the strange employer, the employer that's not normal. I want to suggest to you that the man hires these last guys, and perhaps all of them, but it's particularly the last guy at 5 o'clock, not because he's rushed, not because he's, he's saying, we've got to get this done real quick and I need all the hands I can get. I think if that were the case, he wouldn't have asked them, why are you standing there? He would have just said, hey, I need you. The man hires these people because he has compassion on them. Now look what happens next. Verse 8. 6 o'clock p.m., closing time. When evening was come, the lord of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire, and here's something strange, starting with the last unto the first. Why would he say that? There's absolutely no reason for it. If he was just hiring them because he was rushed, or if he was just hiring them in a commonplace kind of way. Right here we see there's something odd about this man give them their hire, and start with the last people. Start with the last people. This is strange. And brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you that there's no reason at all why he would give them their hire, starting with the last and ending with the first, but for sheer excitement. And he's excited to give the last a full day's wage. And he's excited. It's kind of like giving a present on Christmas Day. You've got a gift for someone that you love, and you, oh, I want you to open it now, because you're so excited to give it to them, right? Why else would he say, begin with the last unto the first? It seems like he just wants to see the reaction that they're going to have on their face. He's excited to see their joy. And in verse 9, you can just imagine their surprise. So don't, Sometimes we can read this so fast. Just imagine if you were um, a man in the first century and you needed to provide for your family. You didn't have a job that you could go to every, every day, so you, had to, you didn't have a, a regular job. You got a family to feed, and you go out and you stand there wanting to be hired for a day so you can make money and feed your family and do whatever else. Now, no one hires you that day. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and by the end of the day, you think, oh, I'm going to go home without any money. And all of a sudden, a guy comes by and says, hey, what are you guys doing standing there? No one hired us. He says, oh, come work for me. It's, you, know, you know it's 5 o'clock, but okay, I'll work an hour, bring home something at least. And you go work, you're probably not that thrilled about the events of the day. Now imagine at the end of the day, you worked for an hour. You hardly broke a sweat. Okay, and all of a sudden, the vineyard owner gives you a full day's wage. He gives you a denarius. Now, can you imagine their shock? You know what it would be like? Something like Bob Cratchit in uh, A Christmas Carol, right? I have no. I'm I'm forced to do. Uh, what does he say? I have no. Um, what's the famous line? He says, um, "No other option but to raise your salary," right? Just blesses him. He just blesses him for no reason. He just blesses these guys. They don't deserve it. They hardly worked for him. It was just a kind thing to do. Imagine their surprise. Imagine their joy when they go home and tell their family, Look, I only worked like an hour today, and look at all the money I made. How would you do that? This man, in his kindness, gave that to me. However, we see that not everyone is happy about this. Right? In this parable. Not everybody is happy about this. Who aren't happy about this? The first guys. The first guys. Now, they got the exact same thing, right? A denarius. That's, that's a fair amount of money. That's a day's wage. And they worked for the whole day. And they got their day's wage. So one man receives a denarius, and he's joyful. And another man receives a denarius, and he's angry. What's the difference? What's the difference between these two groups? Brothers and sisters, they got the same thing, and they responded differently. And here's why. The last were happy because they got what they didn't deserve. And the first were unhappy because they supposed that they deserved more. And the first said, that's preposterous. Right? This is perverted. This is absurd. This is wrong. This is contrary to nature and reason. We work more, we should get more. Right? Based upon what? What's their reasoning? Look at verse 10. When the first came, they supposed something's going on in their brain. They supposed they should receive more. Why? On what basis did they suppose? Brothers and sisters, merely on the basis of work. Their mindset was all about work and desserts. That's all they could see. Work and desserts. They figured if the vineyard owner gives the guy who worked one hour a denarius, that's probably, in his mind, what they deserved. That means we're going to get more, right? All they could see was what you deserved. That's it. They could not see beyond that. Verse 12, look at their reasoning. These last have, wor- have wrought or worked. They've only worked one hour. But we, you have made them equal with us, even though we worked more than they did. They don't like that. People don't like that, you see. We worked more than they they did, so we shouldn't be treated the same. We shouldn't be equal, because our works are different. All they could see. Brothers and sisters, let me suggest, when we think like that, we become murmurers, right? It says they murmured against the, the man who owned the vineyard. When you think, when you only think like in terms of works and desserts, you're going to be a miserable, grumpy, depressed, angry murmurer when you only think in terms of work and desserts. Why? Because life doesn't always work on the basis of work and desserts. You might want it to, but it doesn't. There is such a thing as generosity in this world. And if all you think about is work and desserts, and you're not going to like those who are generous. Look at verse 13 and fif- to 15. I want to underline two things that the man says. Verse 13, "Friend, I don't do you any wrong. True or false. True. True. Did he do anything wrong? Was he unjust? No, he was not unjust. Because he was working on a different level than justice. He was certainly just. He gave the guy the denarius that they had agreed to. But there was something more about this man than just justice. He says, is it not lawful for me in verse 15? Is it not lawful for me to do with my own? Of course it is. Nothing unjust about it. Man cannot be accused of sin. And Notice two things, verse 14 and verse 15. In the King James, it's the word, I will. Take what is yours and go your way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? I think I will is a little weak in the King James. In the Greek, or it would have been clear in the Old English, but it means I want I want, verse 14, I want to give to this last one, even as I gave to you. I want to. Verse 15, Can't I do what I want? See, now we're starting to see what the parable is all about and what this man is like. He wanted to bless those guys with a full day's wage. And why, verse 15? Is your eye evil because what? I'm good. The whole parable shows the man's goodness. He's not a man who's just trying to get to rush and get his field done. He's a man who's good. And when you see that last part and you say, I'm good, you can look back over the rest of the parable and say, ah, yes, I did see his goodness breaking through throughout it. This is the point. He's good. Brothers and sisters, the whole parable of the eccentric uh, employer is about grace and works. It's about generosity versus legalism. It's about compassion and kindness over and above just justice and deserts. The main point is the character and the behavior of the man, the employer. Look at verse 1 again. What does Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is like? A bunch of workers going out in their field? No. The kingdom of heaven is like a man, right? This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a man. Let me tell you about this man. He went out and hired some guys. They he went and hired more. At the end of the day, he hired a guy for, ten, for one hour, and he paid him a day's wage. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's about a man, a good man, a compassionate man, a man who wants to bless people who don't deserve it. That's what God is like. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is always teaching us about what God is like. God is good, Right? God is good. And in this parable, good doesn't just mean he doesn't sin. God is good in that he's generous, compassionate, and kind. God gives salvation freely and undeservedly. Jesus is teaching this in this parable. God is good. Now certainly God is just. God does not do anything wrong, ever. When God gives salvation freely And undeservedly, he's not doing anything wrong. When God gives someone what they do deserve, which is what? Damnation. Hell. That's what we deserve. And when God gives someone what they deserve, does he do anything wrong? Very important to understand that. When God gives someone what they deserve, he doesn't do anything wrong. But also, when God gives grace to a man, when God gives a man something that he doesn't deserve? Does he do anything wrong? No. He's showing his goodness. He's showing that there's more to him than just giving people what they deserve. Do you believe that there's more to God than just giving people what they deserve? This is what Christianity is all about. This is where our hope is found, right? Our hope isn't found in God giving us what we deserve what we deserve. And this is what Jesus is at pains to show us, that there's more to God than just law, works, and deserts. God is good, and he cares for people who don't deserve. Is that within your view of God? Do you go to church and think, because I went to church I'm on God's good side now because I'm going to get what I deserve. If I don't go to church, then I'm not on God's good side anymore because now he's going to give me I don't deserve good. I don't deserve good things coming my way this week. Oh, I sinned. I sinned yesterday. That means something bad's coming my way because that's how karma works, right? You do something bad and it comes back on you. That's what's going to happen. I'm not going to expect anything good today. Oh, I did something so good the other day. I was so compassionate. I'm just going to walk down the street and expect something good to happen. Right. The reality is, is that though God is like this, Jesus is telling us this is what God's like. He's like the eccentric employer. okay. And the reality is that even though God is like this, men don't get it. Men's eyes are evil. Just like these other uh, men, these first employees. He says, Is your eye evil because I'm good? They can't see, men often cannot see beyond deserts to generosity. All they can see is legalism. And Jesus is essentially saying that to only see legalism is to have an evil eye. You're an evil person if all you can see is legalism. You're an evil person if you're a religious person who tells people that you have to keep the commandments to be right with God, and that's just how it works. That's evil, Jesus is saying. And you don't know God. Because there's more to God than that. It comes down to your point of view. Do you see only works or do you see grace? The ones who have evil eyes, the ones who are upset when God gives grace, and they get upset, are men and women who think that they deserve more, who think that they're better than other people, right? It's the ones who work all day, And they say, come on, I've done all my work. I've kept the commandments. I've done more than that person did. And you're going to say he's going to get just as much. You're going to make him equal to me? Really? I'm better than that. Self-righteous, arrogant, people who think they have assets, people who think that they are good, are the ones who have evil eyes. Because they think, I want God to give me justice. Right? I want God to give me what I deserve. They don't understand They don't understand that, like the rich young ruler, they don't have anything. We sang some beautiful songs this morning about being helpless and receiving grace. Brothers and sisters, the message of the Bible and and the point of Jesus coming into the world to die for you is that you don't have anything. Who do you relate to in this parable? Do you relate to the guys who worked all day and I deserve to be paid more than other people? Or do you relate to the guy who's just like, what? What? You're giving me a full day's wage. I didn't do anything. (laughs) Who do you relate to? Are you helpless? Do you need his grace? Do you feel strong? The world is all about being strong, right? It's all about getting what you deserve. Bethany and I have been watching a documentary on uh, Nazi Germany, and it's following Hitler's life. And one thing that strikes me about that is that their mindset is all about the strong dominating the weak. If you're weak, step aside. You don't really have a place in this world. In fact, we might as well just kill you. But if you're great, then we'll honor you with beautiful uniforms and beautiful feasts and parades, and we'll do all this, because it's all about being great. And even though a lot of us will look at Hitler and the Nazis and say, yeah, that's really bad, uh, inside we often are like that, right? That's, That's what worldly religion is all about. Ooh, you have a tattoo, or you sinned, or you're an adulterer, or, oh, what, you've been divorced, or, oh, you've murdered someone? Oh, you don't have a place in God's world. Get out of here, out of the kingdom of heaven. But me? Yeah, I'm a good person, right? Give me a sparkling uniform of righteousness, and let me walk into heaven with a big parade. The gospel's all about Jesus showing us That God loves the helpless, the weak, the people who have nothing. The people who don't expect anything except damnation. And when they get it, they are surprised and full of joy. In many ways, and it's been rightly pointed out, this parable is a lot like the parable of the prodigal son. right? Both of these parables are dealing with the revelation of God's grace and love for those who don't deserve it, and with those who don't like it, right? The prodigal son, man sins, all, sins, all, sins away and wastes all the money, the father throws him a big feast, and the older brother doesn't like it. Same thing going on in this parable. Exact same thing. The point of the parable is not about rewards. Get beyond that, brothers and sisters. This parable is not about all Christians are going to receive the same reward, or why we should work or how God sees and rewards. This parable is all about God and his generosity towards sinners and people who don't deserve it. That's the point of this parable. It's about God and his desire to give eternal life. The parable is declaring God in heaven wants to give eternal life freely to those who don't deserve it. That's what God wants. That's what he's all about. He wants, and it's, it's a statement of his desire. Eternal life is not being pulled out of his hands unwillingly from Jesus for us, right? Jesus doesn't go into heaven and kind of yank eternal life out of God's hands so we can give it to Jonathan. <laughs> this, Jesus is showing us God's desires to give because God is gracious and generous at heart. Grace changes everything. The wisdom of man is all about getting what you deserve. The wisdom of God is all about grace and lifting up those who are nobodies. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first is a total reversal of the existing order of things and how men think about God. And brothers and sisters, there probably couldn't be a stranger saying than that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That doesn't make sense, right? That's preposterous. But you realize this saying is not absurd when you realize what's involved in it, when you realize that it's actually about grace, and when you realize it's actually reversing the way men think about the world and about God. Men think that certain people are better than others. Men think that there are firsts and lasts. According to God, everyone is last. According to God, no one deserves. And so how shocking it will be to the sentiments of man when those who everyone said were last are suddenly first and those who everyone said were first are suddenly last. God surprises the world. This is happy for some and angering for others. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So no, this isn't talking about the first Christians shall be last and the last Christians shall be first. How would we apply that? This is, saying about, this is talking about salvation. In fact, in another passage in Luke chapter 13, Jesus uses the phrase again in a different setting, and it's clearly referring to salvation. Men sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, while those who they thought would be there are kicked out. So it's talking about salvation. It's a preposterous saying about salvation, not about Christians per se as many Christians tend to take this saying, the first Christians will be last and the last Christians will be first. What is that supposed to mean? We're all going to get the same rewards? But rather, those who are last in the eyes of the world will become first by the grace of God and those who are first in the eyes of the world will be last because of the justice of God that they seem to ignore and don't understand for no one is righteous the first workers got what they deserved which i believe represents damnation but salvation comes freely to those who don't deserve could you imagine if the if the last workers who worked only an hour were handed a denarius by the owner by the landowner and they said no i'm not going to accept that because i don't deserve it do you imagine how shallow that would be. You know, many people are like that. I think that they're hypocrites, though. I think that in reality, they would have accepted it, right? But when it comes to religion, they seem to exclude any element of grace, compassion, and generosity, right? In life, they'll they'll just grab all the free stuff they can get, right? I don't think there's a person on this earth, there might be some crazy person, who would work an hour a day, and if your employer said, I just want to be compassionate towards you and give you a full day's wage, that they would reject and say, no, I don't deserve it. Maybe some. But that would show how shallow they are. Basically, they're saying, there's no place for generosity and compassion in this world. I'm too proud to accept that. I'll work tomorrow and make, make my money. Thank you. How shallow and ugly is that? But I think most people would say, really? Can you imagine Bob Cratchit? No thanks, Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> could you imagine brothers and sisters we would leap for joy at that and we would realize the love and compassion of this man and we'd love that person for doing that That's, that's reality anything else is unreality but for some reason when it comes to salvation and when God wants to do that for us and God just says look Nathaniel Kim I love you and I just want to give you something you don't deserve you know A lot of people in life just say, no thanks, God. Even though it's like Bob Cratchit on steroids, right? (laughs) No thanks, God. I'll work my way. Let me suggest that if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you reject the grace of God, and if you say, no thanks, God, I'm good enough and I'll work my way, or if I'm not good enough, I'll get better. Let me suggest you're an incredibly shallow person and extremely ugly to God. And you're a complete liar. To yourself, Because the reality is, you're helpless. And you need his goodness. You need it. And when, when you realize that, you'll become a Christian. Christians are those who realize they got nothing except a good God, and that's all they need, right? This is how salvation comes. And brothers and sisters, right now, God in his great goodness, because he sent Christ to die for our sins, extends eternal life to all men. All a man needs to do is accept that and put their faith in God's awesome compassion. So, what do you think? Do you think that you must work and deserve to get to heaven? Do you think that the first will be first and the last will be last? That's how most people think, and if you think that way, you're in good company. You're in the majority, but you're not with Jesus, because Jesus said, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus devastated a young man who thought like, who thought like, uh, like this, that the first will be first, and the last will be last, last chapter. The rich young ruler had everything going for him. Most would have thought he was saved. Jesus devastated him, by saying, you're not in. Jesus devastates the Pharisees by saying, you're not in, but the harlots and the tax collectors who believe in me are. Jesus shows us that no one can be saved by the law because the law requires perfection. But people like Peter, the big sinner who denies the Lord, he's in because he believes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is essentially saying to the apostles and to us, you who believe in me, though you have no righteousness, because you believe in me, and it makes no sense to the world, you shall have eternal life. Isn't that awesome? Through me, you shall inherit eternal life. Through the generosity of God, you shall inherit eternal life. A total reversal of man's wisdom and ways. Truly, it is preposterous. But I want to suggest not absurd when you realize that it's all about grace. In fact, brothers and sisters, it is absurd to think otherwise. It is absurd to think otherwise. What will you be? First now, last later, or last now and first later? Where's your eye this morning? What are you looking at? What can you see? Can you only see the law and legalism and deserts and works? Can you only think that you deserve more and you shouldn't be equal with others because you're better? Or maybe you're on the other end. Maybe you feel like you're a failure and you think, I can never be equal with others because I failed. Is that how you think? Do you only think in terms of works and deserts? Do you not see the generosity of God? Where's your eye this morning? And let me urge you, look not to yourself, but look to the cross. And there you will see the wonderful eccentricity of God. And you'll see that God is not like us, Who are really stuffy and stingy. But with God is amazing love and generosity for sinners just like you, and don't think you are excluded. And you, although you deserve nothing, and that's true, by looking at Him and trusting in Him, shall inherit eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are so good to send your Son and to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Help us to see this morning the message of this amazing saying and parable that seems preposterous to the world, absurd, but Lord, that is the wisdom of God. Help us to see how good you are, Lord, and that you want to save us. Help us to see how helpless we are and that we have nothing to offer you, Lord. Thank you for being so good to us. Please save many people in this valley, Lord, and turn their eye from being evil and shallow. Help them to see, Lord, the beautiful message of Jesus Christ, that you would be glorified, Lord, and that we would be saved. We thank you, Lord,